0: And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Some of you may recall that back in the 1980s, Nancy Reagan, the former first lady of the United States, caused a significant stir in the press when it was discovered that following the attempted assassination of her husband, she had employed the services of a well-known Hollywood astrologer by the name of Joan Quigley. Mrs. Reagan had become so concerned for her husband's safety and well-being that she violated security protocols by revealing to Quigley detailed portions of the president's daily schedule. Apparently, Mrs. Reagan felt that if only she could know the future, if only she could know what was coming next, and she believed that Quigley could help her with this, then perhaps she could avoid any potential disasters. Well, as I said, this created a veritable firestorm in the press and the White House. The administration had a difficult time tamping it down and explaining the situation to the public. But the point is this, Nancy Reagan was not alone. Down through the centuries in every age for various reasons, people have always been fascinated by this idea of prophecy and the idea of knowing the future. You've all heard of the famous oracle at Delphi who was eagerly sought after by both the high and low alike of Greek society for her wisdom and her supernatural ability to foretell the future. And mind you, this is not just an ancient phenomenon or something that is only confined to the west coast or to Hollywood, no. In fact, those of you who went to the parish retreat in the mountains of North Carolina just a few weeks ago, You may have seen the tarot card reader who had set up shop on the main street in Hendersonville. As tourists were walking up and down the sidewalk, she was offering, for a fee of course, to tell them their future, to tell them the future of their love life and their future economic circumstances and so forth. Oh yes, presidents, politicians, politicians, wives, generals, monarchs, all sorts of people have always been fascinated by this idea of knowing the future. And as today's gospel lesson makes clear, the Lord's disciples were no exception to the rule. In fact, it was their curiosity about their future and the probing questions about what was to come that provided the occasion for Jesus' famous teaching about the last things here in Luke chapter. This section of the Gospel is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse because it was a teaching that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives just opposite the city of Jerusalem. It was the last formal teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples prior to his crucifixion, and it was a teaching in which Jesus talked at great length about the future, about the future and the end of the world as we know it. Now I want to be very clear, this is a notoriously difficult section of the Bible to interpret. As a matter of fact, down through the years it has provoked a diversity of ideas and eschatological arguments the truth be known have divided Christians one from another. So my goal this morning is not to wade into the controversies or try and answer everybody's questions about the last times or the end times. And said, today I simply want to highlight some of the themes from Jesus' teaching about the future that I think can help us in terms of living the Christian life in the present. So with that said, what are some of the lessons that we can glean? Well, I think one of the first lessons that we learn from Jesus' teaching about the future is that history, contrary to popular belief, actually matters. History is actually going somewhere. History actually has a goal and destination. And that means that Christians of all people should be encouraged. You know when the apostle Paul visited the ancient city of Athens on his second missionary journey, the book of Acts says that he was provoked in his spirit. Now that is to say that Paul was troubled. He was disturbed by what he found. Athens was supposed to be the great intellectual center of the ancient world. It was the place where all of the great scholars were supposed to gather. But when Paul arrived there, he found that the entire city was filled with idols. Everywhere he turned, he saw a temple or a pagan shrine. Paul even saw an altar that was dedicated to an unknown god. And frankly, he found all of this superstition, all of this idolatry to be very disturbing. He found it to be beneath the dignity of a city that was renowned for its wisdom. But it wasn't just the idolatry that upset Paul. It was also the Athenians' grim view of life. A grim view of life, the truth be known, was tied to their grim view of history. You've all heard the expression, what goes around, comes around. Well, that is exactly what the Greeks believed. The Greeks believed that time and history were basically cyclical, like the seasons of the year. We all recognize that spring is a time of great promise and a time of great hope, but spring eventually gives way to what? Summer. And summer will give way to autumn, and autumn will give way to winter, a time of death and dormancy. But then what happens? Well of course the whole cycle starts all over again. There's no real direction, no real purpose, no goal to any of it. Just the same thing over and over again. Well the Greeks believed that the same thing was true of men and nations. Nations would be born, they would rise to prominence, but then they would experience a decline and a death. In fact, at the time that the Apostle Paul visited Athens, it was in the late afternoon of its glory. But again, no real direction, no real purpose and therefore no real hope. If you think about it, it's a very depressing view, isn't it? You're born, you rise to maturity, you decline and you die and that's the end of you. But other people are going to be born, they're going to go through the same thing, they'll rise to maturity, they'll decline, they'll die and it just goes on and on like that forever. It's a very depressing view of life and history and yet it is precisely the view of a great many people today. Henry Ford, the founder of the famous Ford Motor Company was at once asked what he thought of history. Presumably, because he was a man who was making it. And he replied, History is bunk. It's just the succession of one damn thing after another. Well, I want you to understand something this morning that is not the Christian view. Christians do not believe that history is meaningless. We actually believe that God is the Lord of history. That he is at work in history, fulfilling his purposes and his plans. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That phrase, in the fullness of time, means at just the right time in the economy of God's salvation. In history, God acted for the salvation of the world. My friends, this is the unique claim of Christianity that at one point, God himself entered history, thereby infusing it with direction, with power, and with value. In other words, history is not just a collection of random, meaningless events. Now God is at work in the events of history moving all things inexorably toward a grand and glorious climax, and that climax is going to occur when Jesus Christ, who came in great humility, appears again at the end of the age with power and great glory. When he comes, the old order of things will pass away. Indeed, it's already started to pass away and a new and permanent order will be established, one which involves the resurrection of the dead and the regeneration of the entire universe. This is what we profess a belief in every single Sunday when we stand and we say, we believe he will come again with power and great glory. Now I know sometimes we look at the world around us we look at the events taking place, we look at the political landscape and it doesn't appear as though history's going anywhere. It doesn't appear as though there's any direction. It doesn't appear as though there's any guiding hand behind any of it. <clears throat> but I want you to understand, that is only because God's work in history is not like an evolutionary process. It's not a continuous ascent. God is working with human beings. He's working with moral agents like you and me who are capable of great good, but also great evil, which means that God's work in history is more like a corporate chart than an evolutionary process. There are times when there are great peaks and there are times when there are great troughs And there are peaks and there are troughs and there are peaks and there are troughs but the point is that over the long haul everything is moving upward toward this grand finale when Jesus Christ will come again at the end of the age. That's what Jesus is talking about here in this morning's gospel lesson. When he says, yes, there will come times of distress in the nations, perplexity, the roaring of the seas, people fainting with fear and foreboding at what is coming upon the world. But, he says, in the end, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And he says, when that happens, his followers are to do what? We are to straighten up, lift up our necks. Why? because our redemption is drawing nigh. Folks, that's where history is going. That is what God is doing in history. He is moving all things toward a grand and glorious climax when Christ will appear in majesty. And that means that as all people, we should be encouraged because we know how this story ends, don't we? It ultimately ends with the redemption of the world. So that's the first thing we learn from Jesus' teaching about the future. History is going somewhere. But that does raise a serious question, doesn't it? If all of history is moving inexorably toward this grand climax, when will it take place? When will history come to an end? When will Christ return in majesty? You'll notice that is precisely the question that the Lord's disciples asked him when he talked to them about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. For Jews, the temple was the most important place on earth. It was a magnificent structure. It was made of polished white marble and stone overlaid with gold. It was a huge complex situated on a commanding spot on the top of Mount Zion. You could see it for miles around. It was so magnificent that when the sun would rise and glint off of all of that gold, they said you could barely stand to look at it. The temple had a sense of weightiness and permanence about it. You can see the disciples were so impressed by its monuments. And yet Jesus is emphatic. He said the time would come when not even the temple would remain. Not one stone, he said, would be left standing upon another. The disciples could not even envision how that could be. Incidentally, it happened in their own lifetime, in the year 70 AD. But at this point, it was in the future, and they just couldn't envision how that could take place. And that's why they pressed Jesus. They said, when? When will this happen? What will be the signs that these things are about to take place? And Jesus says, actually, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, it's just the prelude. It's just the overture. It's just the harbinger of the things that are to come when he returns in glory. Which is why we ask the same question that the disciples asked, don't we? Well, if that's the case, when When is all of this going to happen? When is all of this going to take place? Well, this is the second thing we are meant to learn from Jesus' teaching about the future. Only God knows. Only God knows when history is going to reach its grand and glorious climax. Jesus in Matthew chapter four said, but as for that day and that hour, no one knows not the angels not even the son but only the father I've always thought it rather presumptuous that down through the centuries people have tried to calculate or pinpoint when Jesus Christ is going to come again they do it over and over again and I say that's presumptuous because my goodness if Jesus himself doesn't know when he's coming back and it's his party how can anyone else presume to know when he is coming back? Now, I understand that a lack of a definite time frame to these events has led many people to be skeptical. They've begun to think that, well, maybe he's not coming back at all. Maybe even many people in the church think that God has tarried for so long that perhaps he's not going to come back at all. But I want you to understand something this morning. The doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ is not an option for Christians. This is not an addendum. This is not just an add-on to Christianity. This is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. The New Testament declares that this is the culmination of God's plan of salvation. And that becomes clear when you read through the New Testament. Are you aware of the fact that the second coming of Christ is mentioned once in every 25 verses of the New Testament? It's referred to 318 times in 260 chapters. It's referenced in every single book of the New Testament with the exception of four, and three of those four are the shortest books of the Bible, and they are dealing with specific problems. The Apostle Paul called the second coming of Christ our blessed hope. The Apostle Peter called it our living hope. And listen, these are the last words of the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Every time... We say in the liturgy those words, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. What we are declaring is that just as assuredly as we believe he came the first time to die for our sins, and just as assuredly as we believe that he rose bodily for our justification, so we believe that Jesus Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead and to set this broken and fallen world right. And Paul says we are to encourage each other with those words. Now, yes, it does seem as though God is taking his good, sweet time. It does seem as though God has tarried for a very long time. I mean, let's be honest, it's been 2,000 years. But if God has tarried, it is because he has a very good reason. Peter in his second epistle said this but do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Why should you and I believe that Christ will return in God's good time? It's really very simple. It's because Jesus said he would return. And he who has proven himself faithful in the past in his death and his resurrection can certainly be counted on for the future. We may not know when he is coming, but we know for certain that he will. And that brings us to the third lesson that we glean from Jesus' teaching about the future. The need that we all have to be ready. Ready for this event whenever it occurs. If history is moving toward a grand and glorious climax and nobody but God knows when that is going to take place, we all have the need to be ready. Jesus said that his coming in glory would be a time for his believers of great rejoicing. It will be the sign that their redemption is drawing nigh. But he is clear for very many other people, it is going to be a time of great sorrow, it is going to be a time of great loss, it is going to be a time of bitterness and goal. And that is because Christ's return in glory will mark judgment, a judgment upon the world. Matthew in his version of the Olivet Discourse makes this point very clear. Jesus compares the days just prior to his second return to the days on earth just before the flood of Noah. And this is what he says. He says, in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah went into the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be, he said, with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore Jesus says, stay awake, for you do not know when your Lord is coming. Jesus' point is that his return will mark a great separation, a separation of the lost from the saved, believers from non-believers. Now I know that for many people this is the most troubling aspect of the doctrine of the second coming. But folks, we confess this every Sunday. We say we believe that he will come again in glory to what? Judge the quick or the living and the dead. And that's why Jesus says we must be ready. Well, how do you know? How do you know that you'll be ready when Christ comes, whenever that may be? Let me suggest to you two things this morning. First, in order to be ready for Christ's return, you must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You, as an individual, must know Jesus Christ and be known by him." If that image that Jesus used about the two men in the field and the two men in the grindstone teaches us anything at all, it teaches us this, that no one is going to be saved simply because they are in close proximity to a Christian. Christianity is not a hereditary matter. It doesn't get passed on to you in the bloodstream. You must know Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. You'll recall that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So in order to be ready, you must know Jesus Christ, and you must be known by Him. But here's the second thing that you need to have in order to be ready. You need to have the attitude that you need to be about the Father's business. In order to be ready, you need to be doing the work that God has left you on this world, on this earth, to do. Jesus told a story once about a wealthy landowner who went off into a distant country on business and was detained. And while he was gone, he entrusted his property to two servants, one of whom proved to be faithful, who was diligent. He didn't know when the master was coming back. He knew the master had been delayed, but nevertheless, he trusted the master, took him at his word. And so he made sure all the accounts were straight, the pantry was full, the beds were made. He was ready whenever the master came back. The other servant, on the other hand, recognizing that the master had been delayed for a long time, began to doubt whether he was ever coming back at all. And so he became sloppy, self-indulgent, and he didn't take care of the things that he was supposed to take care of. And Jesus said, suddenly the master showed up. Unexpectedly, to everyone's surprise. And that servant who had been faithful, he was commended for his faithfulness. But the one who had not been faithful, who had been self-indulgent and lazy, Jesus said he was condemned and he was cast out. Well, let me put it to you plainly this morning. Which servant are you? which servant are you? Let me suggest another way of looking at this. If you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, let's say you did have some special insight, and you knew that Jesus Christ was going to come back next week, what difference would that make in the way that you are living this week? If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back next week, how would your priorities change? If you knew Jesus Christ was coming back next week, would you spend most of your time on the golf course or at the club? Or would you spend more time in prayer and Bible study? If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back next week, what about that broken relationship? What about that son or that daughter that you have not spoken to for months? What about that parent from whom you are estranged? If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back next week, what about that person you wronged, that you hurt, that you wounded? Would you seek to make amends? If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back next week, Would you make it a priority to share the good news of Jesus Christ with your children that they might know him personally? If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back next week because the point is that he may. He may come back next week. He may come back today and the question is this, will we be ready? Many of you have probably heard of Sir Ernest Shackleton. He was the great polar explorer. In 1915, Shackleton and 27 men on board the ship Endurance found themselves marooned on the South Pole on the polar ice cap. Their ship had been caught in the ice, and as that pack ice began to move in, it crushed the vessel, the hull of the vessel, and it shrank. And Shackleton and those 27 men found themselves there on that ice with no place to go. They had to eke out an existence there for five months. Now eventually, the weather began to turn, the ice began to break apart, and they realized they had a chance. They had managed to keep the lifeboats, and so they jumped into the boats and tried to escape, but they didn't get far. They landed on an uninhabited island called Elephant Island. And the situation there was just as bleak as the situation they had left. And that's when Shackleton realized, okay, somebody's got to go for help or we're not going to survive. And so he left behind 22 men under the command of a man by the name of Frank Wilde. And he and five men got into a small boat, about 20 feet long, I suppose, and started off on a journey across an 800-mile turbulent sea to try and find civilization. Well, eventually, believe it or not, they did. And the minute he found civilization, he mounted a rescue mission back to Elephant Island. But it failed because of the weather. In fact, he mounted three rescue missions and they all failed because of the weather. In the meantime, Frank Wilde and those 22 men were marooned for over five months, trying to eke out an existence, suffering from exposure, from near starvation, from frostbite, not knowing if Shackleton or anyone else was going to come to their rescue. Finally, a fourth rescue mission was mounted and it did make it successively, successfully to Elephant Island. And what do you think Shackleton found? He found that all 22 men were alive. They were alive. He was stunned. He recorded in his diary Frank Wild had kept the company alive and he had kept hope alive in their hearts. How did he do it? Here's how he did it. Every morning Frank Wild would be the first man up. He would carefully pack up his kit and then he would cry out in a cheery voice to the other men, all right boys time to get up, roll up your sleeping bags because the boss may be back today. Now, if you think about it, that should be our attitude as Christians, shouldn't it? We don't know when, but we know that Jesus Christ is going to come back and we need to be ready for that as believers. We need to be watchful. We need to be vigilant. So, brothers and sisters, wake up. Shake off the night. Shake off the works of darkness. Roll up your sleeping bags because the boss may be back today. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do not know when you are going to return, but we know that you will. You'll come suddenly like a thief, but that day should not catch us by surprise. As believers, we need to be vigilant. If there be any here today who do not have a personal relationship with you, use whatever means necessary to draw them into fellowship. And Lord, grant that those of us who do know you, may be about our Father's business, recognize that the time is short. The next thing on the Father's agenda is your return in glory. So come Lord Jesus, fill us with a sense of urgency, that we may be watchful, that when you appear we may lift up our heads and rejoice that our salvation draweth nigh. Amen.